All right, ladies and gents, how you doing? How you been? How's your friend? Awesome, I hope. This is your host, Adam Ismail, and our goal at Perform True is to empower higher health and performance for individuals and organizations. With the High Performance Lab, our goal with this podcast is to have interesting conversations with health and performance practitioners, enthusiasts, doctors, coaches, athletes, corporate athletes, and many more in order to glean valuable insights and uncover the methods you need to start dictating your own health and performance expectations. Now, I'm really excited about the show we have lined up for you guys today for a few reasons. First, it is actually the first time we're going to dig into an actual health and performance topic, and we are only in episode two. Well, technically, it's episode one, part two. And secondly, this topic is hyper, 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 hyper critical when you consider some of the changing paradigms in healthcare and medicine. So to introduce this topic, I'm going to start off with a quote. There's going to be a few of these today, so I'm really taking care of you guys. Be thankful. It is Thanksgiving tomorrow. Uh, Let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Most of you probably have no idea who said that. All good. This quote speaks to the beliefs of Hippocrates, my man, an early philosopher and definitely one of my homies. He really captures the importance of nutrition and natural medicinal practices. When I alluded to those changing paradigms in health and performance previously, what I'm really getting at is the lifestyle as medicine movement. And at Perform True, we believe there's no better way to control your health and performance outcomes than through the lifestyle choices that you make. Why, might you ask? Shouldn't I eat 10 pounds of turkey tomorrow? Well, most of the leading outcome-based research shows that the choices you make as far as movement, nutrition, mental health, and overall wellness are actually the biggest factors that control or prevent chronic diseases like diabetes, diabetes, cardiovascular and health issues, cancer, and the list goes on. So that brings us to the topic we're going to focus on today. Uh, It actually ranks in the top two or three factors that contribute to chronic disease today, and more than 70% of Americans are impacted by either high or moderate to high amounts of it. We're talking about our old enemy or friend, depends on how you look at it, stress, particularly chronic stress. So I'm going to hit you guys with another quote here, told you I'd be taking care of you. The rigor of corporate athletics is often even more demanding than that of professional athletes. In my world, one does not have the luxury of an off-season. So I bet no one knows who that was. Probably a better chance that you know the Hippocrates quote than this one. That was from Arthur Blank way back in 1999. Now, many of you probably know of Arthur Blank as the goofy owner of the Falcons, the Atlanta Falcons, that is, who was dancing really awkwardly on the sidelines before the Patriots erased a 25-point deficit and sent him and the Dirty Birds dancing back home with their tail between their legs. But he's actually the longtime president and CEO of Home Depot, and I actually think he looks a lot like one of those Gonzo-type characters from the Muppets, but I digress, and I'm not sure if that's even the right name. Anyhow, I bring that quote to light because it was from Dr. Jack Grapple's 1999 book called The Corporate Athlete, How to Achieve Maximal Performance in Business and Life, which essentially popularized the quote corporate athlete that I've kind of fell in love with over the last few years. And 
really while this entire podcast and our recommendations are fit for anyone looking to proactively get a hold on their stress, we're definitely going to be highlighting the importance of stress management as a primary determinant of the sec- of the success of many corporate athletes. And for today's episode, we're actually going to switch, switch things up as far as a typical order of operations. Usually, I'd love to start with the macro, hit you guys with the why it's important, and then dig into whatever the topic is, and then hit you guys with recommendations. So the original iteration of this podcast that I actually released last night on SoundCloud, although I didn't um, tweet about it or advertise it too much, um, really because I felt a little bit uncertain about it. So the original uh, iteration was actually out last night and it was highly detailed. I walked through a background on stress, how to define it, how our stress response works, what are the common signs and symptoms, the evolution of stress uh, up until modern day. And finally, we hit you with the six strategies for managing stress. But that didn't happen until, oh, about 50 minutes or so. So what I did was, I released the pod last night, listened to it, and I said, you know what? Not everyone is going to geek out over the details of stress management like maybe I do. We obviously aim to please, so I went back and I pulled the six strategies up to the front. Now, I'm highly detailed and I think that you don't really understand something until you turn it over a few times, maybe a few hundred times. Uh, So the truth is, what we did here today is really just scratching the surface with stress management because each topic, each component could be a separate podcast on its own. For the geeks listening, I am taking care of you guys as well. I've kept all the components of the previous iteration of this pod, including the background, defining stress, symptoms, evolution, etc. But what I've done is just slid them to the back. So after we make these six recommendations up front, keep listening if you want to reinforce the strategies with background knowledge. I know I would. But before we dive in, let's get over to the kitchen to see what we cooked up for you guys this week with a little stovetop beats. Uh. Keeping it 100! Zero. All I gotta say is for that intro, how smooth and relaxed was the little trip down 1993 memory lane? That was a tribe called Quest Electric Relaxation, released in 1993, November to be exact. Definitely been a hit ever since. I heard Michael Rapaport talking about it the other day on PMT. That is short for Pardon My Take, another um, podcast that Barstool Sports put out puts out, but don't let me digress. Um, the one thing I got to say about this track is that it's a shame they didn't wait a few months because they could have launched it in 1994, which in my book and definitely in the books of many other hip hop heads, 94 was um, definitely one of the most influential years in hip hop. Uh, I'm talking Ready to Die by The Notorious, Southern Play, A List of Cadillac Music by Outkast, Hard to Earn by Gangstar, uh, Method Man and Redman put out what I believe were their first solo albums, uh, Regulate by Warren G. Wait, all right, I guess we can put a West Coast rapper on this list. Um, and then one of my top three albums all, t- all time, so definitely, um, you know, not even close to last or least on this list, Illmatic by Nas, and that produced the instrumentals for today's Segway music. Halftime by Nas is what you guys are about to hear. Uh, as always, if you want to revisit any of these classics, do check the show notes for the link to uh, each particular instrumental that we use for that show, or you can head over to our YouTube channel where we will be compiling all of the instrumentals that we use for the show. So that's going to do it for Stovetop Beats. We will be lacing them up for you again next week. 
All right, honeys and homies. As I mentioned in the intro, we decided to skip the foreplay and get straight into the goodness. But I'm not going to lie, I'm still a bit hesitant when it comes to moving these strategies way up to the front because I truly believe in painting the full picture. So when I'm writing content or planning for this podcast, my research and the way that I approach it is to take a widescreen objective view of the macro picture and then start to drill in, touching on all the major components and details before hitting you with any recommendations or advice. It's just what I'm used to. Not to say that that is the number one or only approach that's out there. So that said, really want to encourage you guys to tune into the rest of this podcast where I'm going to touch on some really important pieces and components of the conversation around stress that are going to make these strategies make a whole hell of a lot more sense and make you realize the importance of this topic. So your choice, but let's go ahead and get into it. Coming in hot at number six on the charts, we have managing workplace expectations. So the workplace is one of the many modern environments that are so damn important, but still create so much damn stress if you let it. So when I first started my career, I was without a doubt the urgent employee. If you're not familiar with the concept, I'll go ahead and link it in the show notes. But essentially, the urgent employee believes that every task, every initiative is super urgent, high priority, mission critical. Love that term. But for some, really the reason why they are an urgent employee, it's going to stem from, you know, general anxiety over deadlines and other factors that I won't predict or extrapolate further on here. But for me, it was purely a lack of experience, right? I didn't know how to effectively manage and communicate expectations. So the safest option was just to make everything urgent and take that approach in order to not miss on any deadlines or any deliverables. But what you're going to find is that urgent employees are the epitome of the yes man. We all know what that means. And what ends up happening nine times out of 10, it's happened to me before, is the urgent employee ends up having to explain why something that was actually urgent was not delivered on time or within budget, but a bunch of extra less critical items from that to-do list that builds up were delivered. So bottom line, never be the urgent employee, never be a yes man, and always over-communicate when managing expectations to the point where the communication is uncomfortable because you're doing it so much. And when you do this effectively, everything is transparent and on the table. Uh, Level setting expectations ends up eliminating most of your workplace related stress, makes you a better employee, better asset to your team. And more importantly, it puts you in a better position to plan, which is what's going to be crucial to stress. So here are my tips. I have three of them for you for effectively managing expectations. Number one, as I alluded to earlier, do not be a yes man or yes woman. If I learned one thing in professional services, it's to be skeptical. And a lot of people don't want to hear that, but I mean it in the most positive, most you know, well-intentioned way. You can never just blindly accept what people say at face value, whether you're gathering information, interviewing stakeholders, receiving feedback from even an end user or somebody in the field who's using your product, your service, whatever it is, ask questions and dig for any gaps in logic. If you're not asking questions, 
or somebody's not asking you questions, something is wrong. You should always expect them. So what you do from there after you're asking these questions is you listen, play back or summarize your understanding, confirm buy-in or agreement with your understanding, and then at that point, you're in a better position to say yes or no, right? And consider signing yourself, or worse in some cases, your team up for any responsibilities, delivering a particular piece of the pie, whatever the case may be. So don't be a yes man. Number two, ask better questions. This is one of the most effective strategies for gathering information, uncovering any inconsistencies or questions or pieces to the puzzle that haven't been considered yet. And more importantly, it is crucial for building consensus within the workplace or within a team or an organization. You do that through asking better questions, believe it or not. And one of the best ways to really see what people are thinking and you might think this is funny at first, ask the same question multiple different ways. You'd be shocked at the different responses that you get, but this process of asking better questions ultimately leads to better answers and ultimately, blah, 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 ultimately clearer expectations. And that's what we're working towards when we're considering a lot of the stress that comes out of the workplace. When you know what's expected of you, it is a hell of a lot easier to manage and plan towards delivering whatever it is that expectation is. And if the expectations are through the roof, impossible, well, then you need to have a conversation. But managing expectations and communicating is huge. Another uh, third, I would say the third tip of mine that you've probably heard of is under promise and over deliver. This is a legendary saying or you know, axiom to live by in the world of professional services and really any client facing or client serving role, but always better to err on the side of caution and then come in way into budget and way early. It's also a great way for you to win points with your team and not set up deadlines or unrealistic targets that create stress for everyone. Keeping things rolling, we have Ditch Your Digital coming in at number five on our countdown. Seems pretty self-explanatory, and I bet you're even thinking, yep, sounds like a good idea. But there are some statistics that we're going to talk about later that indicate that this is definitely one of those sounds easy enough, difficult to implement in reality type of practices. And if you stick around later, we're going to talk in more detail, but conservatively, 20% of Americans from this APA study that I'm alluding to believe that digital is a huge source of stress. But more than 20% of Americans believe the biggest stress of all is when their technology doesn't work. Hmm. Sounds like a conundrum to me. So here are three of our tips for detoxing your digital consumption. Number one, with the rapid adoption of digital and social platforms, some people just can't put the damn phone down. If digital and social apps, news and email is your fix and you're constantly connected, there's really two specific things that you can do that will deter you from constantly going back to your phone for more. The first seems simple enough, and it's actually a feature that has been kind of hidden behind the scenes of iOS and Android platforms on the mobile devices for some time, but go ahead and grayscale your phone. Lately, this has been popularized by former Google design ethicist and the founder of Time Well Spent. His name is Tristan Harris. Go ahead and check him out. The 
thought behind this is that you might still go to your phone and you're definitely gonna use it. When you open up apps, specifically those like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter that have a really color-dependent user experience, you're gonna be less likely to come back to them knowing it's a little bit boring. I can personally vouch because I've been using this tactic for about two weeks, I guess now you'd say, and I was never addicted to these social apps, but I can say that when I head over to Instagram and it's grayscaled, I get bored much quicker when I'm scrolling through my feed. The other app that I'd encourage you to check out is called Off Time. I just downloaded it. I think it's $2.99 in the App Store, and they've actually been around for about three years. Essentially, what it does is allow you to block yourself from using social media completely on specific days or during certain hours of the day, which is probably the most realistic use case. The app does also have some other cool features like sleep tracking and activity, but I don't think that it really holds a candle compared to some of the other apps and watches and tools that are used for those features. So if you do pay $2.99, just keep in mind, you should probably just be looking to use it for the social media blocking capabilities. I'm gonna put the link to both of those in the show notes and let's move on to number two, creating a technology-free space in your home. So this means no phones, laptops, chargers, desktop computers, don't try to cheat there, Uh, Bluetooth speakers, nothing, absolutely nothing. And ideally you'd fill the room with some nice comfy chairs or a couch, some books for sure, a yoga mat, and ideally some mobility tools like foam rollers or specific bands for stretching, maybe a lacrosse ball. I'm actually rolling my foot at my standing desk in a lacrosse ball now. Um, But the space can be a really great way to unplug and distract yourself in a good, healthy way. Number three, find as much time during the week as you can to put your phone on airplane mode. Yep, that thing has a really good use case other than for breaking the rules when you're flying. I know it's definitely hard to do, but you'd be shocked at how effective this can be. What I like to do is try to set my phone on airplane mode from Friday night when I go to sleep until about 1 p.m. on Saturday. Admittedly, that is a little bit earlier than I usually do because that's when most football gets started uh, on Saturdays and Sundays. But when it's not football season or if it's during the weeks, I try to keep it on airplane mode while I'm working um, from home until about noon so there's no distractions from some of my friends or social media. Number four, I may have lied to you up front. I actually have four and not three tips. So the last one, we're going to touch on this again. But if you can completely disconnect from technology for an extended period of time, it's going to pay dividends. So do that. Whether that is a three-day weekend getaway or something like a 10-day silent retreat, which is definitely on the more extreme end of the spectrum, there's a tremendous amount of research about the benefits to mind and body when you unplug. Right, all right, all right. Number four, we have an appearance from nutrition. So at Perform True, we have four health and performance pillars that really are our focus areas. And we believe that these four pillars are the foundation for ultimate health and performance. So we have cognition and mindfulness, growth and development, movement and nutrition, 
And of those four pillars, nutrition is definitely the one I am most biased towards. I believe it is the most powerful tool we have in our arsenal to make a profound impact to health and performance. And because of that, it's why regardless of what aspect of health and performance you're trying to improve, I always advise people to start off with at a minimum an assessment of their nutritional habits and practices, and at a maximum, depending on who you are, a complete friggin' overhaul of your nutrition. So in my experience, when it comes to stress, it's wildly overlooked. Nutrition is something that's just not considered as a factor or something you can leverage. People think, oh, I just need to you know, relax and unwind this weekend and then get off to a good start at the office next week. Or oh, there's no way I can get this, um, you know, there's no way I can get calmed down until I get this debt repaid. But the truth is there are a few things that you can do nutritionally to really help you out. So when it comes to managing stress from a nutritional perspective, I'm going to give you guys two key things to focus on in your diet. Number one is low sugar. And I know there's a ton of publications and articles and a lot of stuff flying around in the news lately that some of the media definitely doesn't want you to hear that talks about how damaging, how addicting, and how truly ravaging sugar is on our bodies. So I'm a huge proponent of the ketogenic diet, Um, not in ketosis right now. We do have Thanksgiving up tomorrow, Thanksgiving coming up tomorrow, so there's no way I'd be um, hanging in there on a ketogenic diet, but I am a huge proponent. I think it has profound impacts on mood consistency, reducing anxiety, and overall stress. But we do know that this diet is a little bit too extreme for most people today. So the good news is some other options you can look into are paleo or paleo-esque approaches, the slow-carb diet, and really any Atkins or modified Atkins approach. Reason being is that these diets are not just low in carbs, but they're extremely low in all forms of sugar intake. Over the short term, sugar is directly responsible for most mood swings and that daily roller coaster ride of energy levels and crashing in the afternoon, which I personally and most of us absolutely hate. But what's scary is that over the long term, sugar is a huge factor for chronic inflammation in the body and more importantly, depression. So sugar is linked over the long term to depression in men especially. So all the homies out there, don't eat sugar. Don't get depressed. Uh, The great thing about the foods that are good to eat when you're looking to combat stress is that not only are they well-researched and documented, but they're actually really tasty. Uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola, who is the author of Fat for Fuel, I'm going to link up Dr. Joe Mercola in the notes. He recommends dark chocolate, Ideally, it'd be 80 to 90% dark chocolate, protein from high-quality sources like grass-fed meat or cheese, and even bananas, which I've just recently learned, although they have a lot of sugar in them, you have to be careful with your portions, they do have dopamine, which definitely improves your mood. So I'm going to drop a link to Dr. Joe's site in the notes. The second key thing that you can do falls under the category of vitamins and supplements. So we always recommend whole foods, and I'm not talking about the store. I'm talking about tangible, organic, functional foods, even though I love whole foods. Um, like whole foods a lot, actually. But as your primary source of nutrition, you definitely want it to come from whole foods. The problem is even the healthiest of people who are fanatical about their diet, have a hard time getting everything they need through whole whole foods. 
So I did want to make sure that I called out a few supplements that we definitely recommend. Number one, ashwagandha. This is an Asian herb and its roots, leaves, and berries have been used for a really long time in Ayurvedic medicine, but as of late, it's been shown to significantly reduce cortisol levels by up to 27% in one study. And it does have other positive impacts to cognition, reducing anxiety and inflammation. Now, I haven't heard of many folks taking this, and I've actually just experimented with it in a small sample pack over the last few weeks, but I know that many products, including Organifi's green juice, are infused with ashwagandha, among many other vitamins and minerals. So Organifi's green juice, even though it is a little bit pricey, I think it's $69.99, I just got a, a free pack of it from a local vitamin shop and was able to try it. So I can't say with certainty, um where I stand with ashwagandha, but 27% decrease in cortisol levels, I think it's worth a try. Now, for some of the highest quality supplements, I'm talking pharmaceutical grade stuff by some of the best brands in the business, what I want you guys to do is head over to epibolics.com www.epibolics.com. It was co-founded by a friend and alumni from my Florida Southern College days. These guys are experts in the supplement industry, insulin resistance, and a really unique company. Uh, Side note, they know a ton about the ketogenic diet and actually did a good job getting me started with their IR14 plan. But the point is, when it comes to supplements, even for managing stress, they have over 21,000 supplements from all top-rated pharmaceutical-grade brands. So head over and take a look at Epibolics. But in, in particular, there's two supplements that I wanted to call out. The first is Cortisol Calm by Pure Encapsulations. The other is Phytosone by Thorn Research. I actually purchased Cortisol Calm directly through Pure Encapsulations and purchased it for a family member of mine who did see a significant reduction in some of the symptoms that they were experiencing due to chronic stress. So I'm going to have everything in the show notes. Sprint over there and check these out. Top three, top three, top three. All right, guys, kicking off with the top three, we have movement. So movement is a much better way of saying exercise, but I like to call it movement because I absolutely hate the term exercise. I think that we need, as a society and as a group of people who are trying to live healthier lives and perform better, we need to start thinking of our exercise as a practice, as a movement practice. And that's why we have an entire pillar dedicated to movement at Perform True. This can range from things as simple as stretching techniques to structural integrity and mobility techniques, or even how to do a functional movement screen. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the other day somebody asked me, why I'm so biased toward nutrition as far as controlling health and performance outcomes. I responded somewhat similarly to how I laid out the previous strategy on nutrition, and we kind of went back and forth in conversation for a little bit about things like fat versus sugar, as in which macronutrient is more efficient to burn as fuel, fasting, I should say intermittent fasting, and some other topics as well. And 
The discussion ended up kind of pivoting to stress, and I immediately began lauding and pushing movement and exercise as one of the keys to stress management. Of course, they were like, okay, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. Why are you, you know, saying that nutrition is what you're biased towards, yet you're pushing movement on me now? And what we have to consider is that not only is nutrition an underrated or often overlooked piece to the puzzle for managing stress, but stress is what we're talking about here. And for me, movement has always been the antidote for stress. I know that can't be the case for everyone, but personally, I'm somebody who has grown up exercising and it became an easy hobby and then it became a passion. And then it really became a powerful tool for me, even in my career. Um, in my 20s, and I was able to start my mornings off with some type of movement or go for a, you know, a swim after work at night after working 12 hours in the office. Um, And I really started to believe that that was my secret weapon when it came to career consistency and um, managing that thing that is your career that's essentially a marathon. So if I didn't work out or I went consecutive days without movement, I would feel awful in the office, anxiety levels would be up, and ultimately the stress would essentially start to pile on. So I've personally witnessed how powerful movement can be for managing stress, but what is even more important to mention is that as of the last few years, we now have overwhelming evidence and research that supports the efficacy of both aerobic and anaerobic exercise when it comes to managing stress and obviously health and performance in general. And I say as of late, because traditionally we've always known and had data to support aerobic exercise, what you guys would probably call cardio, but things like swimming, running, and biking. But there was less, I guess, attention paid to anaerobic exercise or less research done there in general. And for those of you who are unaware, anaerobic exercise is going to be things that fall under the umbrella of resistance training. So this could be body weight movements like body weight squats or pull-ups or weightlifting, CrossFit if you're into that, or even high intensity interval training. So biggest point I want you guys to take away from this is that the research is there proving that movement is a huge factor in managing your stress. Getting up, getting going, getting moving, something as small as walking, or something as grand scale as Ironman triathlon. It doesn't matter what you do, but you need to start to think about baking movement and if you want to effectively manage your stress. So what I'd like to say and really my recommendation is that if you're a beginner, just get started. Find something simple and then you can build from there whether it's yoga, swimming, or some type of body weight training, start with that and then start to scale and build upon your movement practice, just like you would a business or any other new skill that you're trying to build. And what I would say is that if you are a beginner, somebody with very little movement experience, try yoga or swimming. You don't have to be the Gandhi of yoga if that even makes sense. And you definitely don't have to be the Michael Phelps of swimming. And one thing I'd really push on everyone, at least to incorporate to some degree into their movement practice, because it relieves stress in your joints and in your body overall, would be some form of aquatics movement. 
And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the collaborations being done between Exos and Speedo. There's a lot of Olympic level coaches and a ton of really sharp people from Exos Sports Performance that have put together a number of aquatics programs that are really efficient and effective. They've rolled out new products that you can use while you're in the water. You don't have to even have to put your head underwater. And the reason this movement is so good is because it takes all of the decompression off of your spine and there is zero impact or stress being put on your joints. So I'm going to link that up in the show notes. Definitely take a look there. And then for you folks who are what I'd call intermediate or a little bit more advanced in your movement practice, let's start thinking about what's most efficient and effective for you. Especially if you are a corporate athlete, you want the bang for your buck. And the way you get that these days is through HIT, high intensity interval training. I'll put a link to some of my favorite high-intensity interval training workouts in the show notes and definitely look to incorporate that in your movement practice. So moving on, ladies and gentlemen. Taking the silver medal in the number two spot is developing a mindfulness practice. So Perform True has an entire pillar or focus area dedicated to cognition and mindfulness. So it's definitely a topic that we think very highly of. And in order to express optimal health and performance, you gotta be 100% focused on the here and now. This concept though, even though it's been around, I don't wanna say forever, but for a very long time, it's a little bit subjective, and my mother actually schooled me on mindfulness a few weeks ago when I incorrectly stated the definition. It's actually defined in so many different ways, come to find out, after doing a little bit of research, that I think it's useful to level set on how we think about mindfulness. So Merriam-Webster will define mindfulness as the practice of maintaining a non-judgmental state of heightened or complete awareness of one's thoughts, emotions, or experiences on a moment-to-moment basis. Now, I actually like that definition, but I think a simpler and more practical way to look at mindfulness is as follows. Higher awareness to the present moment that allows you to be relaxed, patient, and non-reactive. Think the most challenging part of that is a non-reactive, at least for me. So some of you might be saying, okay, well, what does having a mindfulness practice actually mean or how do we do that? It essentially means building in different methods and routines into your day that allow you to train your mind to be more present. There's various forms of practice or methods that we'll touch on briefly, but really quick, I wanted to mention how mindfulness fits into the construct of stress management. So first of all, there's an entire field of psychology I came to find out through my research for this pod that's dedicated to what's called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or MBSR, for short. And essentially, MBSR combines the professional study of psychology with various programs and methods aimed at leveraging the power of mindfulness to combat and reduce stress. There's a ton of research out there supporting the efficacy of MBSR, and there's actually a 2009 study that proved mindfulness to be as powerful or more powerful than clinical psychotherapy practice in reducing stress. So definitely highly leverageable when it comes to reducing stress. It's used by the pros, and it's used privately. But let's get to our two recommendations here for how you can develop or build in mindfulness. Number one is going to be meditation. Now, I was a huge skeptic 
when it came to meditation and never really thought that it would be beneficial, but I was highly, highly wrong about this technique. And I think you'll find that there are a lot of different meditation techniques out there, ranging from the more popular forms like transcendental meditation, aka TM, the Vipassana method, and other forms of guided meditation, to things like Qigong, yoga, or even guided visualization. The latter kind of sounds like a vision quest to me. So I'm intrigued, gonna have to check that one out. Now, I'm personally excited to start learning more about TM in the coming months and doing some experiments there. But what I can recommend for the listeners without a doubt is to try out guided meditation. You don't need to go to a studio, although that's definitely an option if you'd prefer. But the benefit to guided meditation, other than it being guided, is that you can do it from the beginning of your home. Sorry, the comfort of your home. Uh, Even the office, on your commute, whether you're in a train, subway, car, you name it. Apps like Calm and Headspace have really made it easy and accessible for you to try. It's also free to try for 30 days, so I highly encourage you to do that. I personally use Headspace, and what I found is that for just 10 minutes a day, especially for all you who don't think you have the time, this can have a tremendous impact on your ability to be calm and present, even when you're juggling a ton of projects personally and professionally. So number two, as far as methods for developing and building mindfulness, journaling. Now, I'm a huge fan of writing things down and making lists. If I'm feeling uber stressed or overwhelmed, it's always been a great way to calm down, even if it's for planning purposes or just to dump my brain. And it's been well-researched. And studies show that organization definitely has a calming effect, whether it's cleaning your apartment or dumping your thoughts out on paper, it can be beneficial. So... Here's what we'll recommend as far as journaling. One of the biggest ways to utilize journaling to build mindfulness is going to be through another practice of sorts called gratitude. I think you'd be shocked how much you have to be grateful for if you actually take the time to write it down. And the key here is writing it down because this kind of physical, tangible process of writing has a way of sinking into your brain much better. I'm sure there's research behind that but that will not be linked in the show notes. If you guys come across it, feel free to reach out. And there's also a couple, I should say quite a few variations of how you can practice gratitude. There's obviously very different prompts and ways that you can incorporate it into your day-to-day, but the one I'm most familiar with that's been pretty popular lately and has had a tremendous impact for me was actually recommended by my sister. It's called the 5-Minute Journal And I believe it's $12, give or take, on Amazon. And paying that much, you get a journal that prompts you to write down three things you're grateful for in the morning. And then at night, in the evening journaling session, three things, three amazing things that happened that day. Now, you don't have to do both sessions, but I found the best peace in mind from doing both. So, guys, meditation and journaling are two huge steps towards building in a mindfulness practice. Hey guys, what happened? Where where was the drum roll? I was supposed to have a drum roll right now. Hey guys, look, we're gonna have to do this without the drum roll. If I had one, I'd cue it up for sure. Taking home the gold with our number one strategy for managing stress is three things. Structure, anticipation, and being proactive. Yes, all three of them. And 
I want to let a quote marinate in your minds first before diving in. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. No idea who said that, but I bring it up because I was recently reading a few articles as of late and have listened to hundreds of podcasts over the last year or so that talk about high-performing people. And most successful, healthy, and high-performing people are working on the weekends. I know it hurts to hear, but the good news is it's a different kind of work. It's 100% self-work that involves long-term visioning and planning for even months or years ahead. You're going to make your best decisions on how to approach things and ultimately reach your goals and manage your stress when you're planning from a relaxed and present state of mind. Mindfulness. Haha. So because the majority of self-work is doable over the weekends, you have to really think about how to wrap and integrate structure within and around your weekdays, especially if you are a corporate athlete. And this is going to really help you to plan for those periods when you have stress, which leads me into my second point. The most important aspect of managing stress and not letting it manage you other than or after being proactive is that you need to anticipate the stressful periods in your life, work, or relationships that are going to act as roadblocks or bumps in the road and you need to prepare for them if you want to set yourself up for success in health and in life. And at Perform True, we believe doing that requires building structure even into your busiest of days. So that said, let's dig into this buzzword called routines that is going to make up the bulk of this strategy and it's going to really help you to prepare. So This crucial strategy is going to be all about pulling the different methods and practices from the previous strategies that we've discussed so that you can design a plan essentially and then implement it. And any good plan has structure and intent. It's not just done out of habit or thrown together because I told you to. So the best way to intentionally wrap structure around your days and reduce stress is to have a phenomenal start and finish because that is something that you can absolutely control. A good morning or evening routine can be as simple or as radical as you wish to make it. We're gonna leave you with some ideal ingredients that you can consider baking into either your morning or evening routine. Number one, this is more relevant to mornings, a predefined meal or fasting period. I do this every day, so I'm either completely fasted, having a bulletproof coffee, which some would argue is fasting, or I have two predefined meals that I'll eat. One is a protein shake, the other is some type of egg, usually over easy or hard boiled or poached, something along those lines, with another type of high quality fat. That's just me, but the point is what this does for you is decreases the variability in your morning, and it's one less thing that you have to worry about. The second is a mindfulness practice, which we already touched on, probably especially valuable in the morning, although some people use it at night too. Um, You'd be surprised. 10-minute guided meditation session can really reduce stress and set the intention for the rest of your day. Movement, we already discussed these benefits and the research there. Getting it out of the way in the morning is what most folks who are highly successful do to reduce stress, increase energy, And it even opens up your mind for more creative ideas. Journaling is another great way to start and end your day 
It helps you get your thoughts out on paper, build affirmation for what you're grateful for, close out the day on a high note, or start it, set the tone. Reading is another thing that, excuse me, many folks will use to start their day a bit slower if they're not really into the whole movement thing. Um, Or maybe it's just that they have things to, to do later in the day Um, you know, that kind of get in the way. It could be parenting responsibilities, career obligations, what have you. This reading block can really be used or embedded within your morning or evening routine to simply block out time for you to do whatever it may be that you won't have time for later. But we do definitely encourage you to make time for yourself in the beginnings and the end of your day to implement some of these value-adding activities to your routines that are going to pay dividends when it comes to managing stress and then some. So guys, those are the six strategies. As I mentioned up front, each one of these could have been their own podcast. I encourage you to do some more research on each one of these individually. Reach out with questions, adam at performtrue.com. And I encourage you even more highly to continue listening to the rest of this podcast so that all of these can make a bit more sense. You'll be much more well-educated on how we think about stress at PerformTrue and how stress has evolved over time. I think that's what's really gonna set the tone for how seriously you take this. All right, friends, hopefully you guys are enjoying Stovetop Beats as much as we are. Definitely some hip-hop heads over at Perform True. Um, what I'm really hoping is that we can continue on keeping these beats because I was just reminded that there may potentially be some copyright issues, uh, but that's another digression on my part. So what do you say we lean into the topic of today's episode? In this first segment, I'd really like to narrow down the scope a bit and hone in on the concept of stress before getting into the details primarily because stress is used rather loosely and defined subjectively, which is why I don't like the definition and so many others don't as well. So to give you an idea of how loosely defined the term stress is, I'm going to put a link in the show notes from good old Merriam-Webster who defines stress as a constraining force or influence such as And they basically go into four different definitions, A, B, C, and D, that range from force exerted on an object or body part to bodily tension resulting from job-related stress. So very subjective. It's why science doesn't like the definition, and that's definitely why we don't like the definition at PerformTrue. What we like to do is simplify it a bit. And the best way to think about stress is as any actual or perceived event that prompts our system, our human systems, to shift away from our natural baseline, also known as homeostasis, for anyone who remembers fifth or sixth grade biology. Now, if you're thinking of fight or flight, you're definitely at the right stadium, but I'd say that your seats are in another section, so you have to move to a different parking lot. Fight or flight is going to cover really the first half, arguably less, of our stress response and not the entire thing. So as we continue our chat today, we're going to sprinkle in some environmental, evolutionary, and situational context to help you get the whole picture. 
Now, if you've done any background research on stress or if you just Google stress, what are the different types of stress, what you're going to find quite uh, quickly is that folks will generally subscribe to the belief that there are between two and four categories of stress. I believe you can get away with focusing on three of them, but at Perform True, we want to make sure that we are all encompassing and covering our bases. So we look at four. And before we run through what those four buckets look like and give some examples, I want to make sure to clear up any misconceptions and say that all stress is not created equal. Now, in short, manageable doses, stress is very healthy for us. But as we dig into chronic stress, you'll start to see that this is where stress becomes highly detrimental. So let's get into the four types. Physical stress can be anything from jet lag, a physical trauma like a car accident, or taking a haymaker to the face outside of a bar. Hope that doesn't happen to any of you guys, and um, definitely hasn't happened to me in a long time, but I digress. Exercise or even extreme temperatures are good examples of physical stress, and those latter two, um, I just want to note real quickly uh, just a few thoughts about these. So exercise is probably the greatest example of what we'd call good stress. It's really a form of self-induced or controlled stress that is obviously going to benefit us tremendously because what it does is it elicits a biological and physiological response to what we're essentially putting our body through. And what we do is we push to within a certain threshold of whatever our limits are, and that's going to depend on each of us as individuals. And then we essentially recover by returning to our baseline homeostasis. Now, should we be hopping in the track or getting in the gym and, and pushing it so hard that we're going towards heat exhaustion every day? Obviously not. And most of you guys should know that. But that process of self-induced physical stress, generating a response from the body and then kind of pushing to within our own personalized limits and then recovering back down to our baseline is what makes us stronger and healthier and more ready to deal with any physical stressors that may not be self-induced, right? If you have to run from a wolf or uh, whatever the case may be, our environments may throw certain things like that at us that we should be at least somewhat ready to cope with. Now, another extremely interesting physical stressor that I'm really excited to continue researching and experimenting with is extreme temperature exposure. Now, this could be a whole podcast that I'm by nowhere, anywhere close to I wouldn't even say half of an expert on this, but what I'll suffice it to say is that there are many benefits to things like infrared sauna sessions or cold water immersion, and it's primarily based on the premise that we're exercising our ability to tap into, influence, or even control some of those physiological responses to stress, and in turn, we develop a healthier relationship with stress and healthier outcomes. Now, what I'll do is I'll link up the Wim Hof method and some really good thoughts from Dr. Rhonda Patrick and a couple of other folks who are much more well-read and, and well-known than I am. So I'll throw those into the show notes in case you're interested in cold water immersion or infrared sauna sessions. Now, the second grouping, mental or emotional stress, is probably the most common modern-day form of stress. It's contributed to mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And definitely, I think, some of our reliance on 
the pharmaceutical industry. Now, I know some folks really need some of those pharmaceuticals to manage, but I think that there are many other healthier alternatives to that. Again, I digress, but good examples include marriage or relationship issues, financial concerns, or even just sitting in traffic on the way to a big job interview. Metabolic stress is probably the least well-known outside of the medical or science community. And the truth is, I haven't really found a great definition for it yet. So if anyone listening has one, do reach out, please. But what I'll do is I'll surmise it to say that metabolic stress gets applied to or results from the dysfunction of our internal metabolic processes. And what I mean by metabolic processes, these are essentially, I like to look at them as our internal workflows, if you will, that all organisms, not just humans, must execute to maintain homeostasis and ultimately to survive. So examples range from internal things like virus, disease, insulin resistance, and the inability to regulate blood glucose levels. So any metabolic stress is going to definitely tie into chronic disease and really ravage our internal workflows. Environmental stress is the last grouping that we like to look at at Perform True. And this is very interesting to me. It's essentially caused by anything in our surroundings, our environments, right? So this could be the sound of your alarm clock in the morning, pollution, poor air quality, or the obvious one, natural disasters. And we're going to be coming back to this particular grouping of stress in a bit and in a little bit more detail when we talk about evolution, just because despite many of our humanist beliefs and actions over the years, we've never been able to fully control what our environments throw at us. So we'll definitely come back to to that. And now that we've really touched on the best way to view stress and some of those examples, we're going to dive into how our stress response mechanism actually works. I got a really what I think is a, a great hypothetical situation or story for you guys paired with really a Picasso of a diagram that's going to be in the show notes. So uh, we'll do that. We'll shed some light on what goes on internally uh, through those biological and physiological processes. And before we do, just want to reiterate stress in its acute and manageable amounts. That's its healthy format, right? That's its healthy dose. Now, again, where the issue starts to take shape and where we're going to touch on further is with chronic stress. And this is where a single stressor or multiple different stressors from out of those groupings that we talked about are persisting for more than a day, week, months, or even years. So stay tuned and we're gonna dive into stress response. Getting into too much unnecessary detail, going to walk you guys through a hypothetical scenario that would kick off the stress response. Now, this is rather than just getting straight to it with verbiage you may not have heard since anatomy or biology class, or maybe not at all. If you're a former business guy like me, shout out business, ha business, business, business. One other thing, you guys should definitely know this about me. I'm a legend in the New York art community and a veteran of the paint and sip scene, hardcore veteran. So what I have done is bless you guys with a visual in the show notes that you can follow along with. Note though that the unrestricted access and use of this photo without copyright is subject to prosecution by the Intellectual Property and Art Committee of the Museum of Metropolitan Art, where the original digital copy will be on display in New York City starting in 2018. Well, 
that's not true. Not true at all. But I am very proud of that whiteboard creation. So definitely have a look at it. Um, just look at this. Look at that. Would you, would you just look at it? No. Would you look at that? All right. No more digressions. Let's get into this hypothetical story. Seatbelts on, earmuffs if you have nightmares. So you and a good friend are hiking on a trail deep in some heavily wooded and mountainous terrain in the Pacific Northwest. It's a damn stupendous day for hiking, if I might say so myself. Not a cloud in the sky, but the forest canopy is dense and the trail is a bit overgrown, being that it's so early in the season. Sighting is limited, so despite best efforts to hike on high ground, you can't see more than 10 or 15 feet in front of you. The plan is to hike about 8 miles in, and at that point, the trail should come to a crossroads. To the left, a fading dirt path shut down a few years back due to bear and large animal sightings. To the right, and a few miles up this pathway, is the ultimate destination, a natural hot spring that's legendary in the hiking community. It's surprising that most people discount the legend as superstition, because many years back, a group of hikers mysteriously went missing. In the years following, there were close to 50 reported sightings of a 10-foot-tall creature that looked like a cross between homeless Dirk Nowitzki and Chewbacca. Hmm. So you and your friend turn around the bend and head in the direction of the hot spring. And the trail becomes more and more overgrown until your sight is limited to about six feet. You can hear the water from the spring, so you keep pressing on, and boom! All of a sudden, you are squared the fuck up with the one they call Sasquatch, or Sasquatch, a.k.a. Bigfoot. You feel a sudden surge of adrenaline, the heart starts to pound, and your body kicks into fight or flight. You happen to be a state championship runner in 100-meter hurdles, so you take off back down the trail, leaving your buddy to get acquainted. Now, your buddy just so happens to be a former third-string center and backup heavyweight wrestler in high school. Coaches used to make this guy run laps to manage his weight, and he was definitely on the wrong end of a few swirlies in high school. So, needless to say, he's been a fighter his whole life and decides to stick around. Now, your buddy becomes a star of my Picasso in the show notes, and I'm going to use that to run you through how our stress response actually works. So... Stay tuned, and P.S., I am a huge, huge believer that Bigfoot exists. I actually believe that he's right here in New York, probably in the Catskills somewhere. So if any of you guys are interested in getting a search party together, let's round up our video cameras and, and get some type of Blair Witch Project going. And we can, we can head up there for a weekend and really, you know, really break some ground here when it comes to finding Bigfoot. Uh, Adam at PerformTree.com if you guys are interested. Alright gang, let's get ahead and run through the steps play by play, if you will. I'm going to get my John Madden on real quick just to highlight what happens when your stress response is kicked off. No need to have the Picasso in front of you, this should all make sense. And where it all begins and ends is in the brain. We are constantly assessing our surroundings, even right now as I deliver this podcast through the microphone and as you are listening, regardless of whether you are in the car, on the train and commuting, or laying in your bed. We are constantly 
using sensory inputs like sight, sound, and smell, as well as stored memories. And we essentially use all of these inputs to decide if a particular situation warrants us to be on edge. So step one starts out in this phase where we're assessing or deciding if a stressor, perceived or real, is actually a threat to us. And we're doing that using our senses and memories. Now, what I find fascinating is that our brain is wired so damn efficiently that it actually, it decides whether or not to trigger a stress response before we've even had time to process all of the visual messages and imagery that we're um, kind of processing in our environment. And as we're doing so, what we do is send all of this information to our amygdala, which is the part of the brain responsible for emotional processing. And as soon as we perceive a situation or that potential stressor to be a threat, the amygdala, the amygdala, excuse me, goes ahead and sends a distress signal to the hypothalamus, which is our brain's command center. Now, steps two and three happen almost in parallel with the first piece to this being the hypothalamus processing that distress signal and sending a signal to the inner portion of the adrenal gland telling it to secrete epinephrine or what we all come to know as adrenaline into the bloodstream. Now, adrenaline is a crucial hormone. It's responsible for really all of the physiological changes that are kicked off during the stress response, often referred to as fight or flight. So everything that we've talked to thus far really encompasses that first quarter or half of the stress response, which is really, by definition, that fight or flight piece that many of you have heard of. Now, what adrenaline will do is promote rapid heart rate, increase in blood, uh, blood pressure, expansion of our lungs and airways, knees weak, palms are sweaty, there's vomit on a sweater already, mom spaghetti. Wait, what? Well, that's actually fairly accurate with the exception of mom spaghetti. And vomit isn't likely either, but you get it. At this point, we've rapidly primed our state for survival. And almost in parallel, here's that second process which kicks off. It's a signal from the hypothalamus to the pituitary gland telling it to produce, here's a tongue twister, adrenocorticotropic hormone. But we're going to just call that ACTH for today. Then in steps four and five, if you're looking at the diagram, the pituitary gland processes the signal and secretes ACTH, and that's then picked up by the adrenal cortex, which is the upper portion of the adrenal gland, and that upper portion of the adrenal gland goes ahead and secretes cortisol, which we've all come to know and love or hate as a stress hormone. So as we get a spike in cortisol levels displayed in the diagram on step number six, this is actually really crucial and healthy to a certain extent, because after that initial surge of adrenaline, cortisol actually steps in and is responsible for maintaining our heightened state of awareness and keeping us alive and doing so through regulating a whole host of metabolic processes that keep us alive. Regulating the release of glucose into the bloodstream for quick access to energy, digestion of macronutrients, so carbs, proteins, and fats, regulating blood sugar, and even priming our inflammatory response for trauma that hasn't even happened yet. And if you're looking at the diagram, number seven is where this whole thing stops. And it's really the point here 
where uh, chronic stress becomes so important. So in normal or healthy stress scenarios, the brain will essentially start to recognize that the stressor is no longer present and it will signal the rest of the body to respond accordingly, sending us down from this heightened state of awareness and back to our natural baseline. So key thing to note here is that this entire mechanism, including all of those hormonal triggers and the physiological responses that get kicked off to keep us alive, they are designed to turn off. Chronic stress, though, is what results when this mechanism is turned on persistently or, in worst case, perpetually by single or multiple stressors we face. So in this next segment, I'm sure many of you are wondering, okay, well, you know, how do I know if I am suffering from chronic stress or my stress levels are too high? And what you're going to find is that there are quite a few signs and symptoms that should be pretty easy to recognize, and we're going to dive into those in the next segment. So stay tuned. But why, you're probably asking, as well as how to determine if you are actually persistently stressed out. Now, the truth is there's a laundry list of signs that you might be stressed out and it's impacting your health and performance. So it should be easy to monitor, self-diagnose and solution for, no? And not so fast. Most of the signs or symptoms are overlooked because people aren't aware of how those signs fit into the bigger bigger picture and how they tie back into the stress response that we just discussed. But what's even more alarming is that most people simply ignore the signs. And I'm guilty of that as well. There were many of times where I'd prioritize my career, my training, or a night out with the friends uh, over taking the right steps to address my stress in a healthy way. Enter our high-performance methodology, which you can check out at www.performtrue.com forward slash methodology. And what I'll do is link that in the show notes for you. Again, it's www.performtrue.com forward slash methodology. And this is our six-step approach to health and performance. And the number one thing that we preach within it is captured in the first step called assess. Really what we want you to do is start baking self-assessment into your habits so that you're more aware and in tune with your health and performance signs and symptoms across mind, body, and spirit, especially if those are stress-related. And in order to do that, let's hit upon some of the most common signs and symptoms when it comes to stress. So nothing says that I'm stressed out more than a disrupted sleep pattern. Whether you're finding it difficult to fall asleep, waking up throughout the night, or both, this is something that you must pay attention to. Now, chronic stress does ravage all of those internal metabolic processes that we talked about earlier, and all of that internal dysfunction tends to compromise your immune system. So if you're getting closely grouped together instances of, say, the flu or another virus, you're getting sick more often or for longer durations, or you simply just feel run down, these are all very noticeable indicators that you may be stressed and it's impacting your immune system. Now, physical stress is interesting because 
it manifests itself in the body in alarming ways that differ somewhat over the short term and the long term. So starting with the near term, anyone who is chronically stressed out is going to notice low energy levels, especially if your sleep is disrupted, low mood, low sex drive, and even physical aches and pains in your joints. Over the long haul, though, stress sticks out in two really obvious ways. The first of which kind of stems from sustained cortisol levels, which prompt our bodies to deposit brown adipose tissue, which is just fat tissue around the midsection. And not only is this aesthetically a no-go, especially for you beach bombs out there, but it's highly unhealthy because this is the type of fat that can't be burned or quickly utilized by the body. So definitely look out for folks who, you know, maybe this isn't yourself, but folks who have um, a lot of fat deposited around the midsection. The other clear physical indicator of stress is muscle stiffness, especially in three key regions, the neck, the shoulders, and the thoracic spine region. And left unattended, this type of muscle stiffness is going to wreak havoc on your posture and even has the ability to produce chronic pain in your jaw. Often this is referred to as TMJ, named after the temporomandibular joint, TMJ. So essentially what that is is where you open up your jaw, and I'm speaking to this because I've had it before, actually earlier this year, and it is uh, tremendously painful actually. It's very awkward and surprising, but when you try to chew, you're in tremendous pain. When you try to talk, you have a really hard time opening up your jaw all the way. And really what that stems from is a number of different muscles in your shoulders and neck that tighten up, kind of push your head forward with the rounded shoulders and have a ton of impact to different muscles in your neck, like the sternocleidomastoid, just to name one. And my personal pet peeve on this list of symptoms is brain fog or the inability to focus when it matters. So if you're juggling a ton of personal or professional projects between the office and uh, your personal life and you feel like you're highly stressed, I'm going to bet that you've sat down to focus deeply, get work done on a project, complete really any task, or even just read a book And you found that after an hour, your mind has just been wandering to nowhere in particular. So that's definitely a telltale sign that you may be stressed out. And it's personally my least favorite. And this last sign really goes along with the physical symptoms that we mentioned, low mood and low energy. So chronic stress will impact your ability to regulate blood sugar. Now, if you're someone who measures blood glucose directly, whether you are a diabetic or engaged in the ketogenic diet and measuring directly with a blood glucometer, you can look out for readings that are inconsistent and be really especially aware of that if you notice some of these other stress symptoms that we've talked about. But if you're not one of those people, which is probably most of us listening, the low energy and mood or the crashing in the afternoon, I hate that as well, is a good indirect method of telling you that your blood sugar might not be regulated properly um, thanks to stress. So guys, those are the most common symptoms of stress. Um, I hope those were helpful. Definitely look out for them and take a peek at our methodology, that first step assess. Really the intent there is to get you guys thinking about baking in self-assessment and awareness into your everyday routines.
this point, my stories and ramblings should have been enough as far as a foundation for understanding stress, how it works, why it's important, and those symptoms that you want to look out for. I also think it's critical that we spend some time discussing evolution, which is a really interesting topic, uh, in my opinion. It's one I've been thinking about a lot lately after reading Sapiens by Yuval Harari. It's definitely a book that is recommended by and for just about everyone. Very thought-provoking and makes you question everything. So I check that out for sure. I'll throw a link in the show notes. Full disclosure, though, when I originally recorded this podcast, this segment alone was 30 minutes of me rambling. I think really highly about this evolutionary aspect in general, but especially as it relates to stress. So as far as these uh, relevant components go, I definitely encourage you to explore them further in your own time. But for the purposes of this podcast, and my job as the host is to make this as succinct as possible. So let's dive in and see if I achieve that. You guys will be the judge. So first of all, the biggest thing to think about is our environments. Humans, we have and will stop at nothing really to control or manipulate everything in our surroundings. But regardless of what we try, the different tactics we deploy, our environments, even the ones that we manufacture or develop on our own, they have and will always be out of our control to a large extent. Thousands of years ago, humans were primarily hunter-gatherers living in small groups and interactions, not just outside of these groups with other groups, but within our own kind of hunter-gatherer units, interactions between individuals were very minimal, to say the least, um, especially before the cognitive revolution. Now, post-cognitive revolution, our social skills and structures that developed really are arguably the evolutionary asset that was most important as far as leading us to dominance on Earth, right? Our species has literally wiped out a ton of other species and really just became the dominant species on Earth. And it's our social skills and structures that we've developed that have enabled us to do that. But with minimal interaction amongst small groups and individuals, thousands of years ago, there wasn't a lot of social tension, um, stressing over a missed child support payment, or even worrying about job security. The biggest things that we were concerned with were wars or conflict amongst you know, other tribes or other hunter-gatherer groups that were maybe coming in on our territory. Avoiding starvation was a big one, and obviously encountering predators. So what happened back then when one or a group of us were, you know, cornered by a hungry saber-toothed tiger? Did we have impenetrable skin or big claws to fight back with? Now, really, the point is, our stress response that we talked about earlier is what we were equipped with to cope back then. So the most important thing to understand is that our operating system, if you will, we have the same biological stress response software that humans had tens of thousands of years ago. There's been no new software updates like iOS 10 to 11, which I think after the last few weeks is probably a good thing considering that autocorrect feature, which is absolutely rotten. If my eye corrects to an A inside of a square with tires, another time I'm probably going to blow my head off. I digress, so let's bring it back. 
The three things that have changed, though, are as follows. Humans have inhabited or created new environments. So whether we've been migrating to different areas of the globe and assimilating with new environments as far as the you know, the weather, the climates, the different things that we have to assimilate with, or just creating new digital playgrounds. This is the term that I'm going to use. We've always pushed over and inhabited new environments that were already there or straight up created new ones. The second thing is the type of stressors and the volume of the instances of these stressors has increased. Again, both of, both of those things are ultimately controlled by our environments. The third thing is... In, probably the most important, how we react or handle the stress response is drastically different and wildly detrimental. So today, the common environments that we've really established, and these should sound familiar unless you're a vagabond, I'm sorry if you are, but it's going to be the home, the workplace, any social setting that we seek out because they appear safe to us, nature, even though very few of us spend much time there. And then these new digital playgrounds that we're going to touch on shortly. Each of these environments and the stresses that they ultimately throw at us are largely, if not completely, out of our control. And because the types of stressors are much different, take, for example, that scenario with the predator, swap the predator out so instead of a saber-toothed tiger, let's put in something more modern. That same scenario happens almost daily, even multiple times a day, I'd imagine, in the workplace, that new environment that we uh, inhabit so much. And the tiger becomes your boss when he's making rounds and looking for status updates. So where it all really starts to make sense or should make sense lies in how we react to stress today. So it's the same response, but we do something different with it. Thousands of years ago, we responded to starvation or that predator stalking us with movement and action in pursuit of food, shelter, defense, or all three. But today, we are simply responding with stagnation, for lack of a better term. And let's say you had an argument with your spouse or your partner stressing over next month's mortgage or rent payment, why don't you go ahead and, and take a seat on the couch, grab a pint of ice cream or whatever it is that suits your coping methods, I guess, through eating, or even worse, resort to substance abuse. Now, if you're saying, oh, well, I'm one of those people who, you know, I head to the gym. I like to think that too. I like to think that's how I cope with stress, that that's the antidote. But you know what? We are all guilty of this and not everybody can say that they run to the gym. So let's say your boss is hovering over your desk or you're overwhelmed with the project deadline. Well, you can't just run to the gym then, but what do most of us do? Quick, crouch down, round your shoulders, lean that head forward just a little bit deeper into your computer screen and hide from the stressor. So the point is, folks, our stress response was designed to keep us alive but today, way too often, it's per persisting thanks to the overload of stressors that we have in our environments. And then that corresponding spike in adrenaline, heart rate, the release of macronutrients, all of those things that were designed as response to keep us alive and defend against real threats. They are now stagnant and manifesting themselves internally and doing damage to our metabolic processes and overall health 
leading to chronic stress, chronic disease, and a lot of the symptoms that we talked about earlier. So before we wrap things up and get into the six strategies, in this next segment, I'm going to run through some of the statistics around stress from a 2017 American Psychological Association study called Stress in America, Coping with Change, Part 2. So stay tuned. things I've always said about technology and advancement is that it's both the gift and the curse in that it allows us access to unprecedented levels of connectivity and opportunity, connects people throughout the globe. But more often than not, this is at the expense of time that we spend in nature with family, connecting with others organically instead of behind a computer or phone screen, and obviously getting healthy doses of movement into each day. Digital adoption rates are skyrocketing, and this constantly connected, always-on, 24-7 era we're living in is exciting, but it's definitely adding to our stress levels. Now, the APA released two studies within the last few months of this year, Stress in America and Stress in America Coping with Change Part 2, both of which have some really glaring statistics that I think will cap off this discussion and help to concrete the importance of stress management before we run through strategies for dealing with stress. First of all, and I think we can probably agree on a lot of these big ticket items that Americans are stressing about these days, but let's run through a couple examples. 63% are stressed about the future of our nation and believe that we're at our lowest point ever. Not surprised and can't really blame them. 62% are stressing about money. Money, 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 money. Mo money, mo problems. 61% are stressed about work or their job. So no surprises there. When asked about the more specific sources of stress, still nothing overly exciting or surprising. Things like healthcare were excited by 43% of respondents, 35% said the economy, 32% trust in our government, and 31% said hate crime. So definitely signs of the times in our great nation. This is nothing that we don't see on the news just about every single day, every minute on the hour. What really hits home for me is technology and digital adoption, particularly its impact on stress in Americans. And this is covered in much more detail in the latter study, Stress in America, Coping with Change, Part 2, which I will link in the show notes. But let's summarize some of the statistics here. And this one will definitely not be a shocker. 90% of adults own a computer, 75% own an internet-connected smartphone, and 55% a tablet. So needless to say, we are well-connected. Now from 2005 to 2010, and this is going to be honing in on um, the adoption of social media platforms. So during that 10-year window, the percentage of adults on social media went from 7% to 65%. So almost 60% in 10 years. For the young adult cohort, defined as ages 18 to 29, the percentage from 2005 to 2010 went from 12 to 90%. So we're looking at almost 80% increase there for Millennials. The study also categorized the respondents based on three different personas constant checkers of their digital devices, those who check often, and then those who did not check often or constantly. 
Um, so those three buckets. Then what they did was they drilled down into the responses from these particular Americans, and they were able to call out that 46% of employed Americans are constant checkers of their digital devices. 40% fall into the category of checking often, and the remaining go 14% must have fell into that category of folks who didn't decide that they were either of those. Now, numbers for the employed and unemployed are very different, and the numbers for the unemployed folks are definitely glaring as well, but I'd say less impactful, as you would expect, especially when you consider the fact that 46% of the constant checkers cited an average stress level of 6.0 on a scale of 10. This is 36% higher than Americans who did not check often or constantly. So this cohort of employed Americans, these corporate athletes, or anyone who checks their phone constantly, and I honestly think these numbers are conservative, so anyone who is constantly connected to their digital device is going to be inherently more stressed, and that's just the name of the game here. These numbers definitely support that. But what really caps things off here, and I think this is the scariest stat of them all just because it really highlights the unique relationship that we have with technology and digital in our country. Even though more than 20% of the Americans surveyed by the APA, specifically about digital and social adoption, so this is in the uh, Coping with America survey that they did, 20% said that technology was a source of stress but the biggest stressor for them was when their technology did not work. Hey guys, Adam here. I am just kidding. You guys are like, look man, we've been listening to you for almost an hour and 15 minutes now. So I'm going to make this closing segment a very brief. Just wanted to thank you guys for joining and listening. Really hope you enjoyed these insights as much as I enjoyed sharing them. I know the podcast was very long. We are working on making them shorter, but stress management is such a very broad and dense topic that this was really just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Want to make sure that I remind you as always to reach out with feedback, adam at performtrue.com, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at performtrue. And please do enjoy the hell out of your turkey day. So guys, enjoy the time with your family. Thanks again for joining, and we will talk soon. Thanks. Thanks.